Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this series, we have been working our way through the book of Judges, which recounts Israel's early struggle with idolatry in the land of Canaan. As we've seen throughout the book, Israel repeatedly falls into a cycle of infidelity, suffering, repentance, and finally, deliverance. Often this deliverance comes through judges who, filled with the Spirit, emancipate Israel from their Canaanite neighbours who oppress them. The first judge, Othniel, serves as a gold standard for a judge when he defeats Kushan Rishathayim, which is translated as godless guilt. In other words, Othniel leads the people into repentance as they forsake their idols and return to the Lord. As we make our way through the book, we see the judges become consumed with mimetic desire. In the last couple of episodes, we've studied Gideon, who, consumed with desire for wealth and power, becomes a sacred king in Israel. As we continue reading now from chapter 10, verse 6, we see Israel once more suffer the consequences of their own infidelity. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moabites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. But he became exasperated with Israel's actions. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This time, the Lord refuses to respond to Israel's cry for help, instead instructing the people to seek deliverance from their idols. Here we get a glimpse at the effects of mimetic desire upon the Lord himself. The Lord desires Israel's fealty and faithfulness and finds himself competing with the gods of Canaan over this desired object. Time and time again, the gods of Canaan wrest this commonly desired object from the Lord's grasp, which only fortifies his desire for it. 
Israel's worship of the gods of Canaan equates to imitating the desires and cravings of the Canaanites around them. As the Canaanites compete with Israel over the same desired objects, conflict inevitably ensues and Israel become oppressed by their Canaanite neighbours. In their distress, they seek the lord of mimetic rivalry and violence who empowers them to destroy their enemies. However, the Lord has become exasperated with this cycle of infidelity and repentance and instructs Israel to seek salvation from the idols which continue to seduce them. Much like the lover of a perpetually unfaithful partner, the Lord expresses his pain, frustration and unwillingness to continue in the toxic relationship. Wearied by the cycle of deliverance and infidelity, for the first time in the book of Judges, the Lord ghosts Israel. He does not promise to deliver them or raise up a saviour from their midst. When the Ammonites camp against Gilead in Israel, the people seek a deliverer themselves, who they hope will give them relief from their suffering. Reading on now from chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov. And rebellious, worthless people collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites, and to be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Israel, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Then Jephthah sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it to me peacefully. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Gadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. 
Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Eden and the land of Moab and arrived on the side east of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Ammonites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness of the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before this people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what your God, Chemosh, gives to you? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Ara and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, three hundred years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war against me. The Lord, the judge, may he decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Hot on the heels of Israel's search for someone to deliver them to the Ammonites, we are introduced to Jephthah a mighty warrior whose half-brothers expel him from their household because he was the son of another woman. By these means, Jephthah's brothers deal unfaithfully and unfairly with him, in much the same manner as Israel has dealt unfairly and unfaithfully with the Lord. Frustrated with the way his brothers have treated him, Jephthah now asks how they have the gall to request him to now come back and fight their battles. Why should Jephthah recompense his brother's mistreatment of him with grace and mercy? The answer from a mimetic perspective is because that's what scapegoats do. Jephthah's mastery of violence and his expulsion from his own family portray him as a scapegoat from the very beginning. With no inheritance, Jephthah becomes a marauder, surrounding himself with a gang of thugs and attacking and looting various communities. Despite his illegitimate lineage, the portrait of Jephthah as a scapegoat who was expelled from his community and makes a living by pillaging and looting villages in a foreign country reminds us of David's actions in 1 Samuel 27. Fleeing King Saul's attempts to kill him, David lives as a fugitive in the land of the Philistines and survives by pillaging and looting foreign villages. The similarities pose the question to the reader. Could Jephthah be the scapegoat king forged in David's likeness that will save Israel and usher in a new age of peace and prosperity? Now, of course, King David comes along later in the biblical narrative, but it is written earlier than the book of Judges. As I suggested in an earlier episode, 
the book of Judges probably dates to quite late, around the time of the 2nd or 3rd century BC, where the people are looking for a Davidic king who will become their Messiah and liberate them from their foreign overlords. With this expectation in the mind of the ancient reader, the similarities between Jephthah and David are certainly thought-provoking. Our hopes that Jephthah may in fact be the conquering Messianic king we have been anticipating are soon crushed when he demands that if he delivers Israel from the Ammonite enemies, they make him their leader. Like Abimelech before him, who also surrounds himself with a gang of thugs, Jephthah is driven by his desire for glory, honour and power. The people agree to grant Jephthah his desired object in return for delivering them from the Ammonites. Although the Lord witnesses this agreement at Mitzpah, he neither empowers Jephthah nor anoints him for the task, but remains passive, refusing to continue in the toxic cycle of idolatry, suffering, repentance and deliverance. Left to their own devices, the people turn to their scapegoat, Jephthah, as their only hope for deliverance. Having been portrayed as the violent, monstrous offspring of a prostitute, Jephthah was expelled from his community as an anathema. But in their suffering, Israel recall their scapegoat to save them by directing mimetic violence towards their enemies in return for the people's veneration. By these means, Jephthah plays the role of the deified scapegoat who brings peace and blessing to his community following his own scapegoating. To this end, Jephthah corresponds with the king of the Ammonites, who justifies his invasion of Israel by claiming that the land rightfully belongs to the Ammonites. Rebutting his claim, Jephthah argues that the Lord dispossessed the Ammonites of the land when Sihon refused to grant the Israelites access during their wilderness wanderings. Jephthah asserts Israel's divine right to the land and taunts the king of the Ammonites, suggesting that he and his gods are, and have always been, too weak to take the land back. Responding to this challenge, the king of the Ammonites refuses to back down. The stage is now set for conflict. Jephthah and the king of Moab are locked in a mimetic exchange which makes war inevitable. Reading on now from verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroah to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Kebel Kiramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, 
you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and my companions. So he said, Go. Then she sent away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with it according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now that Jephthah is locked in a mimetic conflict with the king of the Ammonites, we are told that he becomes animated by the spirit of the Lord of mimetic rivalry. In other words, the rivalry between these two men has become so intense that Jephthah has forgotten his desire for glory and honor and become obsessed with defeating the king of the Ammonites. In blind pursuit of this new desired object, Jephthah attempts to bargain with the Lord, promising a sacrifice of whatever comes out of his house to meet him when he returns home in victory. Jephthah's desperation becomes apparent when he allows the Lord to select the sacrifice, essentially offering him access not just to his livestock, but also to his family. To secure his desired object of victory, Jephthah is willing to pay any price. Possessed by the spirit of mimetic violence, Jephthah defeats the king of the Amorites and returns home in victory. But his rejoicing is short-lived as he meets his daughter who celebrates his victory by dancing out of the house with a tambourine. In the end, Jephthah's obsession with defeating the king of the Ammonites robs him of his only daughter. Jephthah's daughter stoically accepts her fake, which starkly parallels the response of Ephigenia in the Greek plays of Euripides. In these plays, a prophet informs Agamemnon that he must sacrifice his daughter, Ephigenia, to ensure safe passage for his fleet across the Aegean Sea to Troy. Like Jephthah, Agamemnon bitterly mourns the loss of his daughter, nevertheless agrees to sacrifice her in return for divine assistance. Ephigenia submits to her fate, saying, Father, I have come to you. I willingly grant that your men may bring me to the goddess's altar and sacrifice me, if that is what the oracle requires. In a similar manner, Jephthah's daughter humbly submits to the vow made by her father. By echoing the plight at Ephigenia, the writer of the book of Judges portrays Jephthah's daughter as the tragic victim of a pagan culture which assumes the Lord requires a female victim to ensure military success. The real tragedy is that Jephthah and his daughter have not learnt from Abraham's experience in Genesis chapter 22. Like Jephthah, Abraham desperately attempts to secure his desired object by sacrificing his son. However, when the angel stops him, Abraham learns that no such sacrifice is necessary. 
Unfortunately, Jephthah seems more convinced by the pagan culture around him than the revelation of his own Israelite scriptures. Unlike Ephigenia, Jephthah's daughter requests a two-month reprieve to mourn for her Betalim. This term is often translated as virginity, but I suspect that it refers to something much broader. Jephthah's daughter is not merely mourning that she will die a virgin, but that she will never grow into her desired identity as an independent, strong woman. In another apparent reference to Greek culture, Jephthah's daughter escapes to the mountains with her companions, which may suggest she went to participate in the Bacchus festival before her death. This festival is inspired by Dionysus, the god of wine and viticulture, who drives the women of the city mad and leads them into the mountains to dance, sing and hunt. When one of the men of the city attempts to infiltrate the festival, his own mother blindly leads the other women to vent their mimetic violence upon him, tearing him to pieces. She then proudly brandishes his head like a trophy, supposing it to be the head of a lion. Jephthah's daughter mourns because she will never grow into this model of womanhood, characterized by a fierce sisterhood which, maddened by the spirit of mimetic desire, violently defend their independence. As a pawn of Jephthah's military campaign, she must have found the Bacchus Festival's rebellious liberation of women extremely empowering. Angry with her father, she dreams of dismembering him in retaliation for his foolish vow when he pursues her into the mountains. However, he never does, and Jephthah's daughter eventually returns home to reality. Perhaps during her time with the women on the mountain, she grew disenchanted with this vision of independence and submits herself to her father's vow in the end. However, her martyrdom is not forgotten. To commemorate the tragic death of Jephthah's daughter, the daughters of Jerusalem hold their own Bacchus-like festival, retreating to the mountains for four days every year. This legacy sounds an ominous note as Israel plunges further into immortality and perversity. Reading on now from chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and you did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Thibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. 
Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in his city in Gilead. Imitating Jephthah's desire for military glory, the men of Ephraim set their desire upon this very same object, which draws them into conflict with the Gileadites. Infuriated that Jephthah does not recruit them to fight alongside him, the men of Ephraim threaten to burn his house down with fire. Remember, fire is a common biblical image for the destructive effects of mimetic violence. You may recall that the men of Ephraim also challenged Gideon in a similar manner. However, Gideon diffused their challenge by creating a desired object of glory and honour through flattery. By contrast, Jephthah attacks Ephraim, claiming that they were unwilling to come to his aid. The result is a civil war between Jephthah and the men of Ephraim, which results in much bloodshed. Instead of bringing peace to Israel, Jephthah's short six-year rule is characterized by strife and division. This division and conflict sounds another ominous note for Israel, as mimetic rivalry precipitates its self-destruction. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.